Have you noticed uh, how handy ears are? You know, you can, we, we hang so many things on them these days. Uh, there's masks, there's microphones, there's glasses. But of course, uh, they're mostly useful for uh, listening. And so we should pray that the Lord speaks to us and that we would hear him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have spoken through your prophets and through your Son. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the ears to hear you today uh, from what Jesus tells us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, well, I wonder what it would take to get Jesus kicked out of church. You know, imagine the scenario. Uh, He's the guest preacher. He opens a Bible passage. We've heard the Bible passage before, but he says a few things that just seem a little bit new and make people uneasy. You know, you hear the murmuring, you look left and right. Did he just say, what is it? Well, then imagine he doesn't back down. He starts to drill down. And the question is, what might be the issues that he would, you know, be poking us on to make us potentially want to kick him out of church? Now, that's what happens in the story we've just read. More than kicking him out, of course, they try to throw him off the local cliff. What did he say? And what might he say today to stir up similar anger. Maybe you're thinking, well, we're different from the Nazareth synagogue. We have the Holy Spirit. We couldn't possibly kick out the Son of God. And we pray that's true. But does having the Spirit mean that we no longer sin? No. Does the sin in our lives still need to be rooted out? Well, yes. So let's think about it. What are the areas that Jesus could poke the bear in us if he turned up? He might poke our politics. You know, we get sensitive about our politics, don't we? Do you lean to the left? Because some Christians think that, you, you know, to be Christian is to be progressive. Do you lean to the right? Some Christians think that to be Christian is to be conservative. I think he could poke us. doesn't matter who we are in the area of our politics. Think of an issue you hold what you consider to be Christian views on it. And imagine Jesus turns up and starts telling you, you know, it's a different way. There's plenty to poke. Or he might poke our private purity. He might even say, why are you keeping purity so private anyway? It's an obsession in this individualist society. In CMS, all of our missionaries and office bearers do what we call a Christian lifestyle questionnaire, a CLQ. We do it every few years and it covers issues like sexual purity, accessing porn, addictive behaviours, how much alcohol people drink, how we conduct our relationship, relationships, you name it. It's really quite intrusive actually in some ways. Uh, and all the interviews are conducted in absolute privacy. But imagine Jesus turns up to church and he suggests we do a group CLQ on the platform. How's that make you feel? Who's first? I reckon that'd be a painful poke. Or he might poke our sense of personal pride and identity. Who we are and how we think of ourselves. And maybe it's our pride in being Australian. You know, we like Australia and what an Australian is more or less or what it is to be Western you know we we have a a superior education perhaps Uh, maybe it's superior understanding of the world is that what we think gee or maybe we're we're quite proud of our of being well to do you know we've got a bunch of skills we've worked hard and and essentially we've we've made ourselves respectable 
in the world's eyes, respectable people. But what if Jesus told us there are no special favors for Westerners and there's no special honor for respectable people? What if he started calling us hypocrites? Well, you know, why do you talk about poverty and injustice but never do anything? Why are Western Christians so disinterested in some of the really significant major issues going on in the rest of the world? What would it take to get Jesus kicked out of church? Well, this happened, and I reckon when you look at this, this synagogue in Nazareth, you see this formula at work. You've got people wanting to hear the word of God in the service, plus Jesus speaking the word of God in the service, equals the people trying to silence him. That's a funny equation. What's going on there? What did he say to them? Well, mostly he was talking about himself, that he is proclaiming the kingdom of God and that he is the king of that kingdom. But the pinch point, you know the pinch point, you know when you open a door and there's that little gap between the door and the, and the door frame if you stick your finger in there, crunch. Okay, what's the pinch point in this conversation in the synagogue? It's when he starts talking about who is actually in the kingdom. What he says about the insider and the outsider. And I have two points. This is about accepting Jesus as Israel's prophet And secondly, this is about accepting Jesus as the world's king. Israel's prophet, the world's king. So firstly, this is about accepting Jesus as Israel's prophet. Jesus has gone back to the town he grew up in, Nazareth. He would bear its name for the duration of his ministry. He would be Jesus of Nazareth. It's the Sabbath, so he goes to synagogue. It's his custom. He's a devout Jew. Not sure if he was on the Bible reading roster or the preaching roster, but one way or another he does both. Not sure if Isaiah 61 is the set reading, but certainly it's the one he reads. The Spirit of God is on me, he says. That's no big deal so far. It's just Isaiah talking, right? Isaiah was a prophet from the 8th century BC, one of the great ones. But what is obvious in the prophecies of Isaiah is that God is coming to renew all things. Now, in the politics of Isaiah's day, that meant judgment on a whole bunch of nations who had corrupted human society. And much to their surprise, this included Israel. But it's as if the arrows of Isaiah's prophecy are shot with such power that they shoot straight through the immediate political context into a future context as well. As you read them, you realise there's more going on here and that it involves the rest of us. Not only will Israel have its sin dealt with by this punishment, but that sin would be permanently and ultimately dealt with and as a result of this the whole world could undergo a comprehensive and deeply transformative renewal. There would be a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions. You recognize those words. 
from Isaiah 53. And by his wounds, we would be healed. And that's a message that would be proclaimed to the nations because it's not just for Israel, even though the saviour of the world would come from Israel. And this is the message that Isaiah has been anointed by the Spirit of God to speak. And Jesus quotes a section from this. It's chapter 61 of Isaiah. The section goes like this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Awesome works of God for the downtrodden and the disadvantaged are coming. So the great prophet spoke long ago, but now there's this young man from down the street, Jesus, the son of the carpenter. You know, he's the one who repaired that woman's fence and, and he's the one who repaired this man's dining table and even some of the furniture at the back of the synagogue there, he, he built that furniture. Um, and gee, he's got away with words, doesn't he, this young man? He's impressive. You know, because as he's read that passage, it's kind of come alive it's almost as if Isaiah himself were visiting and they're all transfixed and they're waiting to hear what he says next. You could hear a pin drop and in verse 21 Jesus says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Ah, okay. That's pretty amazing they say. Isn't this Joseph's son? And they speak well of him. They're, he's an impressive young guy from around the corner. And they'd heard the rumours of his miracles and now he's spoken and, gee, he sounds a lot like a prophet. Something really incredible going on with this guy. And other parts of the Gospels report that when people heard Jesus speak, they knew he was different from other teachers because he spoke with authority. And it's dramatic. He's saying now is the moment. Today, he says, this scripture is fulfilled. Right here, right now, I proclaim this. Good news to the poor now, freedom for the prisoners, today, recovery of sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed, this year, this is the year of God's favour, he says, and it's probably a reference to the, the year of Jubilee that they would have known about, but it only came around every 50 years, and that was a year of forgiveness of debts, liberation of all slaves, that's a pretty radical part of the Jewish calendar, isn't it? Imagine that in the Greco-Roman world or in the Australian calendar, that every 50 years all debts were cancelled, all mortgages off. <laughs> wow. And, and so Jesus is like Isaiah returned. He's here to tell Israel that all these promises are now to be fulfilled. This is going to be great. God's on the move. So point one, accepting Jesus as Israel's prophet. The time has come. Things are changing. God is here with us. Of course, historically, the prophets were not well received in Israel. Very often their message made them very unpopular and ostracized and some of them even killed. So point two then, this is about accepting Jesus as Messiah. Now earlier, I called point two accepting Jesus as the world's king. We'll get there. But first, there's something about Jesus' words here we mustn't miss. 
When Jesus says, today, this scripture of Isaiah's is fulfilled in your hearing, it's not just a time reference. It's not just about today. It's also talking about who fulfills it. See, as Jesus himself is reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He's literally reading it about himself. It's not as if Isaiah was the true and ultimate speaker of these words and that Jesus was channeling him. That's the other way around. It's that Jesus was the true and ultimate speaker of these words and that through the power of God speaking prophetically hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah had been channeling Jesus. Today, this is fulfilled right here in hearing me, says Jesus. And this helps us to understand it better. Because this passage comes as part of the long proclamation in Israel of the victory of God amongst his people. There's the promise of the the servant who would do God's will faithfully. But there's also this to be read alongside the, the, the constant promises of God himself coming to save Israel. But the way it describes God coming to save Israel is in a king-like way, a leader who would fight and bring victory. I want to read to you a passage from two chapters earlier in Isaiah, from chapter 59, and hear, what, hear the way that God is described here. This is Isaiah 59, verse 15 and following. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And so his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. It's a military kind of idea, isn't it? That's, that's armour. He put on the helmet of salvation on his head. These sound familiar from Ephesians 6. I wonder where they came from. Right here in Isaiah, I reckon. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun... They will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood, a tsunami, if you like, that the breath of the Lord drives along, the spirit of the Lord, if you like. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. And here he is in their synagogue, right in front of their eyes, the Redeemer, the King. And the word that Israel used to describe their hope that their king would come was Messiah. Now, Messiah, I don't know if you've heard from ministers over the years that Messiah, you know, Jesus comes to Messiah. It's an Old Testament term. And then you've gone through the Old Testament, you're flicking, and you just can't find it anywhere. Because in the English, it's just not there. I don't know why the translators don't use it, but, um, you know, it's probably a good reason. Uh, But Messiah literally means the anointed one which means the king. If you went through the Old Testament in Hebrew or even in the ancient Greek, in the Hebrew you'd find it as Mashiach. In the the Greek you'd find it as Christos. 
And in the Psalms, it's there like there's at least 12 references to the Lord's anointed. And it means Israel's king. And there are also references in Lamentations chapter 4 and in Daniel chapter 9 and in Habakkuk chapter 3. And God had promised to David that a descendant of his would sit on Israel's throne forever. But Jesus turns up, there's no descendant of David on the throne. There's this puppet king of Rome, a series of them with the name Herod. And so, you know, the faithful in Israel are waiting for the anointed one, a descendant of David who they could call their Mashiach, their Christos. And Jesus is saying, it's me. But but listen to how he says it. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. The Spirit has Mashiached me. You know, the baptism of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord descends on him like a dove. And here I am now to give the poor good news, to give the prisoner freedom and the blind their sight and the oppressed their freedom. It's more than words. He's come as the warrior king. He's here for action. Wow, they say, Joseph's son. Who'd have thought? What a fine fellow. What a great speech. But as we know, he's about to be marched to the top of the nearest hill. They're going to kill him, that's what they think, because of what he says next. You're going to want me to do miracles, aren't you? He says. You know, you've heard about what happened down the hill in Capernaum. and You know that there are some miracles down there. You're thinking, well, what about Nazareth, huh? You're one of us, aren't you? Prove it. And he's daring them to say this. Of course, they don't actually say, but he knows they're thinking it. And he goes on, he says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And in fact, maybe God doesn't want to do a miracle here anyway. Ooh, it doesn't stop there. You know what? Back in Elijah's day, it was just the same. God chose not to do any miraculous signs in Israel. He chose non-Jews, those dirty Gentiles. They were the ones who benefited from his kind, miraculous works because the Jews of his day were so wicked. Jesus doesn't elaborate, but they would know that the king and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel, they'd sworn an oath to have Elijah hunted down and killed. Because Elijah had words of judgment for Israel's king, and Ahab didn't like it. And so they hunted him. And instead, God's incredible power and mercy was shown to the outsider. And so we heard the story read short a little while back of the widow of Zarephath and God's miraculous kindness to her in the food that doesn't run out and in the raising of her boy back to life. And Jesus also references Naaman, who was Israel's military leader. He's like a general of the enemy and God is kind to him. You see... Jesus is not just Israel's Messiah, he is the world's king. And more precisely, Israel's Messiah is now the world's king. So how does this make you feel? 
What's your response? Because the Nazareth synagogue was seething. But, but you know, we're quite happy about this, aren't we? Because we are the nations, of course. You know, those, they, they should have been more thankful. But brothers and sisters, you know, the church today still struggles to love the outsider. Jesus would know exactly how to poke each of us on this because many of us would struggle to say that we have loved and welcomed the outsider. So would we run Jesus up the hill to the cliff or would we kneel with him in humble repentance before him? I work for CMS, a global mission agency, and, you know, people are pretty generous in their prayers. It's such a joy being in this job and and seeing people's regular financial giving as well towards mission towards mission to the nations. But we, we don't have many missionaries. And there's not that many lined up in the pipeline. Why is that, do you think? You know, I realise that going overseas means very big sacrifices, and many of us are deeply invested in serving Jesus here. But we do need people to go overseas because Jesus is the world's king. And there are billions of people in the world who don't even know who he is. At least in Australia, there are thousands and thousands of churches. There are millions and millions of Bibles and there's a few million of his disciples, but not in many other places. We need people to love the outsider by going to them. But what about here on the home front? We're facing post-Christian Australia. That's discouraging, isn't it? Do you find that discouraging? Why isn't God miraculously growing the church here, we think? You know, there are pockets of growth, but why is most of the church growth happening in Asia and Africa and South America? You know, what about the big conversion miracles in Australia? Evangelism here is so hard and it's so slow. And, you know, we still kind of reference back to the Billy Graham crusade of the, the 1959. And, you know, in that time, say in the last 50 years, if you go to Cambodia instead, you'll, you'll see a church that's grown from a few hundred believers to about 300,000 believers over 50 years. That's an incredible growth rate. You go to South Korea, nearly a third of the population calls themselves Christian. We could go to numerous other parts of the world and see this incredible growth in the gospel. Lord, won't you do miracles here in Adelaide like you do in Asia? And yes, I'm sure he will, and I know he does. There are quiet conversions every day in Australia. But Jesus is being systematically rejected in the West We're intentionally peeling him out of every part of our society that we can. And we're happy to take, as a society, we're happy to take some of the benefits of our Christian past, but we don't want the Christ himself. And maybe it's a little bit like Israel in the time of Elijah. The outsider is seeing God at work, at least from our perspective. And so here's the big question. What's your reaction to seeing him at work 
overseas. In parts of the world that are so culturally different and foreign to us, if you've, if you've ever visited a place where you, you, you look around and you, you realise you just feel really silly because everyone's looking at you, you look really different. And, and these are the places where God is work, at work. How do you feel about the fact that Christianity is now primarily a religion of the developing world? Now, does that bring joy in your heart to say, isn't that great? Or does it bring a kind of despondency? You know, it's hard to stay interested, isn't it? Because it's, you know, so far away and so removed. Or does it, does it bring even a kind of resentment? You know, what's the point of being involved if we don't get to see, you know, miracles happen, if it doesn't look that dramatic? What's the point? What if Jesus had a rebuke for us to hear? that we needed to hear. Brothers and sisters, the invitation is for us to receive the world's king for who he is. He's the one with the heart for the nations, but he's also the one who wants his church here in Australia to be renewed. Because Jesus will fulfill his promises even here in Australia. What started that day or those days back in Israel in the first century, it will be fulfilled. It will come to fruition. He will grow his church. And we are to be joyful, not jaded. We are to be repentant, not resentful. We are to be engaged in his mission, not disengaged. And so my invitation to you this morning is let's invite Jesus to speak to us as our prophet and to rule over us as the world's desperately needed king. Because the world desperately needs Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son and that you anointed him, you Mashiached him by your Spirit, and that your Spirit still speaks his name today. And Father, we pray for us as a church, as a city, as a country, that you would give us the, the spirit of repentance and the spirit of joy and the spirit of engagement in your mission. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a heart for the outsider, as you do, and to, to be able to see with a mirror the ways in which our own hearts uh, need to be renewed. And we pray that you would do this work in us and among us and through us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.